1: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: Not wanting to release because how would it look, the 80-year-old walking out on a cane? And therefore, the alternative is dying behind prison walls where nobody sees it.
1: Christopher Seeds is an assistant professor of criminology and law and society at the University of California, Irvine. Chris is the author of Death by Prison, a book about life without parole in the United States. In recent decades, life imprisonment without the possibility of parole or LWAP, has developed into a distinctive penal form in the United States. One firmly entrenched in US policymaking, judicial and prosecutorial decision-making, correctional practice, and public discourse. LWAP is now a routine practice, but how it came to be remains in question. 50 years ago, Imprisonment of a person until death was an extraordinary punishment. Today, it counts for the sentences of an increasing number of prisoners in the United States. What explains the shifts in penal practice and societal imagination by which we become accustomed to imprisoning people until death without any re-evaluation or expectation of release? Combining a wide historical lens with detailed state and institutional level research, Death by Prison offers a provocative new foundation for questioning this deeply problematic practice that has escaped close scrutiny for far too long. As you know, Death by Incarceration was launched with Suave Gonzalez to explore the policy of imprisoning youth for life. This book shows a great history of how it came to be in the United States. We really appreciate Christopher coming on the show and sharing his deep knowledge of this subject with us. Thank you very much for listening.
0: Welcome to Death by Incarceration, Chris. Well, thanks, Thanks, first of all, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I am an assistant professor at the University of California, Irvine now, and much of my research focuses on life sentencing. But I got here originally through being a lawyer, and I was a a capital defense attorney for over a decade before I went back to to get a PhD in sociology. So I've got a lot of work in practice in the South and also in New York State doing death penalty work and it's kind of from there that my interest broadened to mass incarceration and specifically to life sentencing
1: so you recently released a book
0: which is a very
1: it's basically our same name but changing one word death by prison and it it talks about the history of life without parole and and this idea of like the basically forever confinement or imprisonment of our citizens in the United States. And I'm just obviously the title rings for us in many ways on this show, but also all of the work we've done to sort of get here. Maybe talk a little bit about how this came about and, you know, kind of why you wrote it and, and the research that went into it. Because it is it's a very interesting book and, and topic and looking forward to digging into it more. My copy
0: just showed up. Okay. So. Yeah, well thanks. When I went I guess when i went back to school from the law i i really wanted to i'd been i'd been i'd say like many capital defense lawyers really focused on death penalty work and after i was i was one of a team of lawyers in new york state that played a role in getting rid of the death penalty there and once i did my interest started to broaden my my i guess awareness of mass incarceration started to broaden and especially life sentencing and i remember before I went back to grad school, the Graham case, which I talk about in the book, right, where a youth is sentenced to life without parole in Florida for an offense in which no one actually gets injured, I was like, "How can that? How can that be? How is that something that's uh, that in this country is just it's okay?" And of course, it's not okay now. The, the Supreme Court, at least, not for a non-homicide crime, changed that in 2010. But at the time, I was still, you know, that was still something, and I wanted to understand that better. So. When I went to grad school, I had kind of had Life Without Parole Sentencing in mind as something I wanted to focus on. And as I started to look into the research, I realized there really wasn't that much written about the history of life sentencing. And I guess I should say that for me, one reason to go back into the academy is just sort of a setup for, I think, what the purpose of this book is and what purpose it can serve coming out of practice, legal practice, working on the ground to the academy was to be able to take a perspective and maybe do some research on issues that a lot of people don't have time to do. And and to actually be in a place to, to do that work and maybe bring out some information that could change the way we see things in important ways. And that's where that work started. And when I started looking back into the history of life, imprisonment and life without parole, I felt that there wasn't much historical work on it. And, and when I realized that, that's sort of when I started digging deeper and trying to find everything I could all the way back to, you know, like 18th century, 19th century up through the present and try to understand how we know as, as life without parole or LWAP today or DBI, death by incarceration, how that came to be so widespread in this country, so routine in this country something that is actually taken for granted I think by most people in this country to see you know well how'd that come about and so that was sort of the impetus for the project and I hope that was ultimately what the book shows shows us something that that this is and just to kind of jump to the to I think what our key takeaways from the book is that this is something that is a contemporary phenomenon mass incarceration is something that now is recognized right as as a a policy tragedy, human rights tragedy of the late 20th century in the United States and early 21st. But I think there's another one going along with it, and that's what this book's talking about. And that is the routineness, the prevalence of putting people in prison until they die, without any kind of reasonable review for release. And so the indignity of dying in confinement, that that's just accepted as something routine and ordinary to do, I think that's also a new development of the past 50 years. and I think that's one that deserves its own close look. And one reason I say that is if you look at, at a lot of sentencing reform initiatives of the past, you know, say the early 21st century, pre-Trump, there was a number of bipartisan reform initiatives that were actually quite successful in many ways, but they were also quite bifurcated. They were focused really on lower level offenses. And at times, they also used Harsher sentencing, including life sentences, including death and prison sentencing for people who commit serious and violent crimes, as a sort of you know, say let's save prison for the people who really need to be there, and even up the up the ante on the sentencing for them. So I think that, to me, that's a good example of how mass incarceration and death by prison are actually they're related, but they're also distinct. And you could fight for mass incarceration pullback, on the one hand, and yet. Not recognize that death by incarceration is also a phenomenon that is, I would say, as unique to the late 20th century in this country as as mass incarceration is.
2: I mean, so I, I appreciate. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate what you said because I remember sitting in my cell years ago when the Simmons case came out, and I studied it, and I was like, "Oh my God, it's coming." That was like the first time since being incarcerated for 30 something years that. I had a glimpse of hope, because I realized that what's next, you know, with the Simmons case, then the Roper's case came out, and then the cases just kept coming out. However, my question to you is this, as a professor that study this issue in a real deep fashion, do you think the United States has an infatuation with locking up juveniles for life? I think,
0: I mean, I think the infatuation with locking up people for life is so is such in this country, or I don't even know what's infatuation is the word that I would use, but I would say acceptance. I would say um, a disregard for for reconsidering people is such that it extends to juveniles, it extends to youth, and I mean we are the only country in the world that has done sentencing for juveniles the way we have in recent years. So I think you can point to that, and that that in itself says there's something. You know, unique about this country, but one thing I hope to do with this work and this research, and I, I'm, I'm not alone in this, there's many people nationwide that are arguing, challenging, life without parole sentencing, death by prison sentencing is, it shouldn't be for, it can't be for juveniles, but it really shouldn't be for anyone.
2: Are you familiar with the lawsuit that the life is in Pennsylvania currently have going on about life without parole. Yeah, you wanna say more about that, Suave? Well, I don't know too much of it. I just know that their life is in Pennsylvania that SCI Phoenix just filed a lawsuit challenging life without parole. I haven't read the lawsuit, so I can't really speak on it, but I do know that Pennsylvania has at least 5,100 prisoners struggling life without parole. Many of them I know because there was the a house at SCI for and many of them are over their age Today, a sixty. So I'm wondering, do you believe that elders deserve a second chance? And it's so like, at what age should these brothers and sisters be considered for parole, if parole is passed?
0: Yeah, I mean, what? Well, I mean, I personally, yes, of course, absolutely. I mean, a lot of my work is is directed. I think as a lot of academics' work is towards trying to understand phenomenon situations that maybe we don't agree with, and to try to present information that can be used in turn to, to help remedy those situations, and yeah, absolutely. I think everybody should have a review for release, and that goes, I think there should be a period, like the Sensing project position is there should be a review for release for everyone after 20 years at most, and I think there should be a review for release for everyone and i don't think i think there should be a review for release again when people get older and i'm doing research now on on elderly dying in prison and i think there should be very careful review before anyone dies in prison of their case and i mean things have gotten a bit better on their front with compassionate release but the age at which it happens i mean these are these are tricky issues but what i want to do with this book and what i'm hoping to do and changing and kind of animating this conversation around death in prison is to really change the principle that's even behind, you know, get us to start rethinking the fact that we're even thinking about putting people away until they die without reconsidering whether they should be released. So that, you know, some of these more specific questions about, well, what age should they be considered at? That's actually a question ideally we wouldn't even get to, right? And I understand this is a really important policy question and one that on the ground matters a lot but this book's sort of approach and this academic situation i'm in i hope is kind of allowing a to take even one step back and say wait a minute this whole enterprise of putting people to death by prison should should be one that's that's questioned not just you know the nuts and bolts of when we do it
1: well i mean the fact of the matter is that you know looking at states that have abolished the death penalty, you would think morally and from a legal standpoint that it would follow suit that they would start abolishing life without parole, you know, because really it's the same thing and many times people that are sentenced to die via execution end up, because of all of the different appeals and kind of how that process goes, they end up dying in prison anyway you know, before they get to their execution date and so what the state is doing is sort of a bait and switch, right? It's like well, you know, we don't believe in in actually the state executing them, but we're going to go ahead and just let them, you know, die in prison. And I think changing the paradigm around the thought process of, you know, the especially the 90s crime bill and this idea of just like over sentencing, over incarceration, you know, and really letting some of the newer studies go, especially around brain science come into play on this because like for example, I talked to a couple of guys in Kansas pretty regularly and they're both one of them's in his 70s, one of them's in his 60s and they've been both of them been in prison. One of them's been in prison for 53 years. And what is he going to do in his he by the time he gets out he'll be, you know, almost 80 years old. What is he going to do at this point? Is he going to go out and like kill a bunch of people? Like, I mean, let's just be real about it. No. <laughs> you know, even if he could, would he? No. I mean, it's just the the idea of like People being warehoused away until the day they die is—it's when we talk about cruel and unusual punishment. I don't understand how that just doesn't straight fall under that category.
0: Right, it's cruel. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I mean, it raises the question of how did this become such an ordinary thing to do in this country that that until the Graham case, until those juvenile cases in 2010, the, the Supreme Court had never actually considered. You know, per se, the constitutionality of of death and prison sentence, and whether that was even okay. You know, I think, and again, yeah, the death penalty, the anti-death penalty work, and LWAP coming in as as a substitute that that seems to be acceptable, or at least something that you might argue for. Um, I, I mean, I understand where that's coming from because I was a capital defense lawyer at one time. I think. I and mean, what I learned doing this research for this book on this question is that a lot of the buildup of life without parole and death by prison sentencing comes about in ways that are less direct than is often recognized. And then what off, what happened is that it's accepted, and it's just there already, and then it's accepted. So for, let me just tell you a little bit about the book, if I can, about its argument. So most of the history this book focuses on, I kind of look at life without parole, death by prison sentencing in three different periods. One's pretty much pre-1970, one's the early 70s through the mid-90s, and then the third one's the mid-90s to the present. And what I find is that that life without parole, that name, that sentence, it's a sentence that comes about you know, with parole and in contrast to it in the late 19th, early 20th century. But it's not necessarily a sentence that means death in prison. It's just a sentence where clemency is going to be the operative review mechanism instead of parole. In Pennsylvania in particular, if you look at the history of those, of, of before 1941, there's two different types of life sentences. There's life with parole and there's life without. And actually, life without parole sentences were ending up in more releases in in much of the time than life with parole sentences. So this earlier history of life without parole doesn't necessarily mean death in prison. It's just a different way of going about it. That really changes in the 70s and uh, in the the ways in which things change are not always so direct. And so I guess the point I'm getting at is that a lot of the support for life without parole from anti-death penalty lines, that was very contested. Right and still is many people don't agree with that still, but it was very contested. What ultimately kind of served as a baseline for for getting wide more widespread national support for LWOP among anti-death penalty movement is the fact that LWOP had already kind of slid in in a lot of different ways and was already in existence. So that earlier form of life without parole, where it actually didn't mean death in prison, that had changed by the mid '90s, and by the mid '90s, that's when the anti-death penalty movement was they're basically accepting okay well this is a thing already now lots of states are sentencing people to death in prison and so we're not exactly adding anything new here we're just doing we're just doing something the states are already doing and I think that that's an example of ways in which life without parole builds up over time in that, in particular in that part between the 70s and the 90s and a lot of what happens is then it gets accepted people look at it and they're like oh we stopped doing parole. for for, say Florida, Florida ends parole in 1983. That wasn't directed at life sentencing. It was across the board stoppage of parole. But what it did on life sentences was it rendered them life without parole sentences, which meant that clemency was the only way out for people serving life. But then clemency, practices were retrenching, right? Governors were starting to do that differently. And the chance of getting out through clemency was drying up. So this new kind of sentence was created. It's not like anybody came out and said, life without parole is now gonna be, our life sentence is now gonna be a death in prison sentence. But moves were made taking away parole, pushing it into the governor's responsibility gubernatorial practices changing. Things were happening that were generating, were making the sentence something that it hadn't been before, death and prison sentence. And then it just kind of got accepted that way. So the sentence, and this is true in Pennsylvania, right? It's true in Louisiana too, both places where, where by statute, life sentence in Pennsylvania, by statute, life sentences didn't have parole after 1940. And yet a lot of people expected to have a chance at review, and Wabi knows better than me, I'm sure, that for a, a time people might have expected to have a chance, but by the by, I'd say late '70s, early '80s, that's gone.
2: In Pennsylvania, before when you went in, we understood what a life sentence meant, but we also understood that before 1989, if you served 22 years, you did everything you were supposed to do, you had a chance at clemency. Now, fast forward to 1989. They had a Camp Hill riot and they had this guy named Reginald McFadden that decided he was going to snitch on everybody that was in the riot and say what the jail wanted him to say. So the jail recommended him for clemency because they have 30, 40 people arrested off the riot because of him. Well, guess what he do? He go out and commit the same exact crime that he committed in 1969, rape murder. That was the end of clemency in the state of Pennsylvania for a long time. Every governor after that was like, we not commuting nobody. So nobody in the state really filed for commutation until John Fetterman came in office. But yes, Pennsylvania always been that way. I was next door, next door to the longest serving juvenile lifer in the United States of America, Joe Legan. Man served 68 years in prison since the age of 14. Went to prison in 1952 and got out last year. I don't even, I don't even remember who was president eight years ago, let alone in 1952. So if somebody could count out there, how long is it from 1952 to now? Please let me know. I I know it's over 60 years, you know, so this is the type of punishment that Pennsylvania has created. However, I believe that there's hope. I believe that if we, the people stand together, come together and start demanding more of our elected officials state reps, state senators, that we could get something done. It's unjust that we have a man in prison since 1952. What is he going to do when he come out? I mean, seriously, and Pennsylvania has them type of guys. I know guys in prison that have been in prison 54, 55, 56 years, and they still serving life and can't come home and never kill nobody because what Pennsylvania has is the statute that first-degree and second-degree murder get the same sentence.
0: Mm-hmm. So felony murder shouldn't be oop eligible there should be review at least at 20 years for release a, a meaningful one and there should be a presumption that no one's going to die in prison and that reviews for people who are older are going to take that into account that that prisons aren't places for older people and people who have served especially long times in prison like right all the I, i'm coming from an academic perspective here so i can throw in the academic research on on dangerousness if you want to use that term people who age out of out of crime in prison who get older and mature and are mentors to other people right lifers the research on that is is clear that they don't pose a threat and can be released right so it's not like there's a, there's like some kind of lack of clarity about you know whether the older folks that you're talking about suave are are posing a high risk it's just that the policy is not following what we know
2: Right. So how can your book be used to change some of these politicians' mind in Pennsylvania? I Well, so
0: I think what this book shows is that life without parole sentencing, let's expand it to death by prison sentencing. I call it perpetual confinement in the book, but death by prison sentencing, which means any sentence that's going to probably end in somebody dying inside, right? So that could be life without parole, but it could also be an 80-year sentence, a 70-year sentence. And it could also be a situation where a person is parole eligible, but then gets hit at the board time after time after time after time and doesn't seem to actually be getting a fair shot, right? So all of those situations, the Sensing Project captures all those under under one umbrella. But what this book shows, I hope, and, and improves is that this way of thinking about people being so expendable that we could just put them in prison, and as you're noting, some like when they're very young, some for 60 years, or really long times, and just say, okay, well, you're done without any kind of review, that that is not something that was an ordinary thing to do in this country, or that would have been done without significant scrutiny before the past, say, 40 to 50 years. And if you look at it that way, and we try to take a longer perspective on death and prison sentencing, I would argue it's an aberration. I wouldn't say it's a normal thing to do even in this country. And I would say that once we recognize that from the history, that this really came about just recently. And once we're aware that it's, that it's not something to be taken for granted and should be looked at carefully, that maybe people will start looking at it more carefully. And to add on to that, I want to make the point that much of the development of, of Life Without Parole, as I said before, was kind of indirect. And so rather than just it being an element of mass incarceration of the style, it says punish people harsher for less, which there is an aspect of that, of it, without a doubt to, to a lot, but a big aspect of it too is what in the book I call disregard, which is people not really caring what happens to people who are imprisoned for long periods of time, not really caring to what happens to people who serve, who commit serious or violent offenses. and. You know, it's it a lot of these LWAP sentences, like in Pennsylvania, right? Clemency changed, suddenly the sentence changed for the people inside. What what did what did Pennsylvania do in response to that? They just let it be, right? And Pennsylvania's not alone. Same in other states. LWAP, the nature of a life without parole sentence changed from having a chance, like you mentioned after twenty-two years or so, to not having really any reasonable chance. And that just kind of was accepted as though that was the way it was. That level, that that acceptance, you know, I think this book really shows is part of the problem that we need to recognize that this is a human rights issue. This is a phenomenon that's related to mass incarceration, but it's also a distinct one. And that when we think about reforming sentencing and abolishing certain things, we need to take into account these extreme sentences that are done, they're really routinized at this time, right? I mean, they are usually used for serious and violent crimes, but there's a level of acceptance of this type of punishment in this country that historically wasn't there and is internationally, as we know, unique. So I think we should be thinking about not just reducing the amount prisons are used and focusing on low level sentencing, diversion programs. We need to be thinking just as much about the sentences that are given to people who commit serious and violent offenses, and and reflect on how we do that. If I could just add one more thing on that, there's an historical aspect to to this disregard in the United States. This kind of overlooking, I think, of how of how we punish people for long periods of time. And if you don't mind, I could just go into that for a second because I do think it's important. So I, I would say that the United States does not have at least until recently i think you know a lot of the organizing that's going on a lot of the policy advocacy that's going on litigation that's going on now around lwop is starting to develop i hope and hopefully this book's a contribution to that work more of a consciousness around death and prison sentencing but historically this country did not did not look at life sentences with the same scrutiny and the same concerns that say um, just to take a jurisdictions that were relatively similar in some ways in terms of their sentencing philosophy to the United States at the turn of the 20th century, like European states, states turned to fixed sentencing. They turned to, to determinate sentencing, which means right, which means that you get a sentence and then you serve it. And a question they faced was, well, what about life sentences? And a life sentence in that case would clearly mean you never get out. And the response to that was generally. No, that's that's overreach. That's an abuse of state power. That's going too far. Everybody needs to have a chance to review and to get out. And throughout a lot of the 20th century, the life sentence without release, is, you know, it's very viewed very skeptically, from in those in those states as an overreach of state power. it has this sort of critical discussion this narrative attached to it historically where people actually debated those issues 100 years ago and decided no that's a human rights violation we're not going to do that and you see that reflected today in in the international treaties both in latin america and in europe and you've seen it a fair amount i'd say in, in european court rulings but in the united states we went to a rehabilitative model which meant that life sentences didn't mean necessarily life in prison they meant you get parole at some point, but you could end up in there for life if you don't get parole, right? And so these conversations about death in prison kind of got pushed to the side because the issue became, oh, well, did that person earn parole? Do they deserve to get out? That became the question that what people wanted to focus on. And the possibility that they actually could end up dying inside and never get out became secondary. And I think so, this country never developed a critical tradition of, of really inspecting the the cruelty, the indignity of putting people in prison until death. And I hope that we're, get, we're inching closer to that kind of national conversation now. I mean, it, there's a long way to go, but I think one thing the book shows on that front is that we've lacked that conversation and it's been to our detriment in in trying to address these
2: issues. So, so do you think that the United States should have apply the same rule that they apply to the juveniles to all life is across the border. I'm 17 today and turn 18 tomorrow morning, I mean, what's the difference? You know, there is no difference. So I think, I think, and I'm grateful to all the justice in the United States Supreme Court they ruled because I was able to get out, but I also believe that that rule should apply to all lifers. Life without parole in the United States of America is unconstitutional. It's it's, it's inhumane. You can't tell me that putting somebody in jail for the rest of their life will deter the crime in your neighborhood. Because it's not. It's not. They told me, the person you're looking at, They told me you are mentally retarded with an IQ of a 56, couldn't read and write, that I was sentenced to life. I didn't even know what a life sentence meant to 10 years later when I learned how to read and write and finally understood it, right? That I was supposed to die in prison. And if it wasn't for this ruling in 2012, I probably would have died in prison, no matter how many degrees I earned, no matter how much I proved myself that I'm not the same person that was accused of committing a crime when I was 16, 17. They did not want to hear that. They did not want to hear that. You know, and I'm looking at my brothers and sisters in the penal system that are serving life, and I know many of these gentlemen. Many of these gentlemen showed me how to read and write. Many of these gentlemen showed me how to be a man in the prison system and not be a statistic of the prison system. You know, so I'm wondering if the United States Supreme Court should get involved one more time and say, you know what? El is banned across the border. Give these brothers and sisters a chance to at least be reviewed by parole because that's not even guaranteed that they're going to come home. The only reason most juvenile lifers came home was because we was resentenced by the courts. Because if it was up to the parole ball, we'd probably still be in jail, Don.
0: I mean, you said it, Suave. I think it's hard to imagine why we wouldn't give people a review to consider their release. Why? I mean, not just juveniles, but why anybody? Why just? decide tens of thousands of people don't even deserve a review and uh, and just pay i mean i don't even have a finger of my fingertips statistics on how much it costs to put somebody in prison for the for all their life but think about how much that costs and think about how many people like the sorts of folks you're talking about you know your mentors that are still in there why are they still in there how much money is being paid for that right it's a strange way to go about spending state dollars and what purposes are really serving. You know, those folks who have been in there for crimes that were committed so long ago. I mean, there's, I think there's, I guess, the upshot of of a lot of what I want to say in this book is just a lack of reflection on this. There's a taken for grantedness to it. I mean, a lot of, right, for being forgotten is sort of a aspect of serving the life sentence, right? And so hearing from the voices of people who serve those sentences like you, like a lot of the folks you've had on your show, like so many other people. That's, I mean, that's absolutely the most important thing, right, is that people hear, people hear everyone talking about their experience and it hopefully becomes more present in the minds of everyone.
2: I mean, I think that it takes more. I think it takes people in academia to really put this issue out there like you've done with your book. Today, I work in academia. I work in Community College of Philadelphia and helping returning citizens get into college after prison. But I think that we need more, more and more professors, law professors, that could study this issue, that know the issues, that align themselves with some of these cases, like the lawsuit they got in Pennsylvania right now, and say, you know what? we go, Our universities want gonna support this because it's the right thing to do. Not because it looked politically right for us, but because it's the right thing to do. Because I tell you, in Pennsylvania, most lifers are banned from speaking to the media. The media is banned from going into the prisons in Pennsylvania. So you just can't say, I'm a media outlet, I wanna speak, you can't do that. The person has to do it at their own risk, and if they get caught, they could end up in solitary confinement. You know, so it's like, it's like a 50-50, like, should I talk to the reporter or I don't? In my case, I was a little radical, so I was like, I don't give a damn about the DOC. I'm already serving life. I'm gonna get to talk to this reporter, let him know what's going on in here. And we all know the benefits of that. We see it today. You know, I stand in front of you as a product of being a voice for a reporter, being a source. And we're recording all our conversation on the phone and on the visit. And those conversations became the Suave podcast, which won the civil war, you know, so I'm glad for that. But I'm also encouraging all re- all professors in academia to really, really, really study this man. We talking about thousands and thousands of men dying in prison. that don't belong in prison. You know, like I said, I was next door to Joe Legan. This man is the oldest, the oldest juvenile lifer, served in the United States of America, almost 70 years in prison. He is 83 to death. I mean, we kept that man in prison 68 years. For what? As a taxpayer today, it hurts me that my money is being used for this nonsense. I mean, think about,
0: you asked earlier about juveniles, I mean, Turn it around, right? Why aren't we asking questions about the elderly? Why isn't there a special concern about the elderly in prison? You know, why, why, why are we not giving them like special consideration, right? And I mean, I feel like that maybe that's coming. Maybe, maybe that that's one way in which death in prison sentencing becomes not the norm is when you you begin to accept that elderly folks in prison. Need to be looked at really carefully for release, and that most of them serve are no public safety risk whatsoever. And in fact, many of them are model prisoners, mentors, the people that would you know you'd actually want to release from prison. And that it's a waste of, of state money and all of the you know collateral consequences, human consequences that relate to you know families and friends and communities that, that result by keeping these people inside. That all of that. Could be just let go if we if we start to look at the plight of the elderly, not just of the juvenile, um, right, or the youth. So I think yeah, fo- changing the focus to the role of the elderly in, in criminal legal system, I think is a really key angle here, and it's one that you know is is again, it's a bit distinct from just a mass incarceration rollback. It's it's let's look at this as a distinct problem. We're putting people away. Until they die, and the disregard for aging that's associated with this is part of
2: it. But this is, the, but this is the America that we cold want and vote these fake politicians in to rule. Right? This is the America that, when they want our votes, they come into our communities. With these criminal justice reforms that they're going to implement if they get in office, we see that in PA right now. The person that's running for governor cold heartedly was the guy that was denying elderly prisoners the opportunity to come home two years ago. Fast forward to now, he's running around looking for the ex-offender vote with promises. With promises of I'm going to reform the system. It's what they all do. It's what they all do. And we are so confused and messed up in our neighborhood that we believe these people and we give them our vote. You know, what a lot of people don't know is that the governor, once he become governor, he has no control of who get voted in for clemency. It's a clemency ball that do that. So before it gets to the governor, to the guy that made you the promise he was going to sign off on it, it got to go through a ball. Four or five people, they might not have looked at it the way the governor promised you. That's what a lot of people don't understand. So I don't buy into these tricks that they politicians be offering our community because I've been there, done that. I've seen plenty of politicians. Plenty of politicians, including Ernie Pree, which was the former attorney general of Pennsylvania at one time. Cold-hearted guy go to prison and have changed your heart now you want now you got to change your heart after your loss has incarcerated thousands and thousands of people now you want to come back and tell the people i shouldn't done that because you don't have no more power you know i say to all these crook politicians that's been indicted that now had a change of heart start identifying all the innocent people your office have prosecuted mr steph williams I mean, let's start with that. I mean, you know, we're talking about death by incarceration. We're talking about keeping it 100, keeping it real. Well, we're keeping it real. It's safe to say we're not letting elderly prisoners out. And in my book, the reason they don't do is because how would it look an old man that's 80, 90 years old, walking out from prison's gates with a cane, falling apart, How would that look to you, America? You would not want to see your grandfather or your great-grandfather walking out of prison because it will break your heart. This is why they don't want to do it. The person that taught me how to read, Frank Raw, he is in prison today. He's been in prison 48 years. He's 90 years old. I speak to him every morning.
0: You know, Suave, that's a really interesting that image you had of the you just brought up of you know not wanting to release because how would it look the 80-year-old walking out on a cane and therefore the alternative is dying behind prison walls where nobody sees it right i mean think about the analog you know to to execution behind prison walls where nobody sees it right execution used to be a spectacle that was in the in the public view now it's still kind of a because a few reporters get to go in and and and, and certain family members right but you don't want anybody to see it because it would raise too much of an issue and i think what you're saying I, that just raised a similar image for me of oh and we letting the the 80 year old out on the cane that's that's its own image that that is better not seen and so just leave that behind prison walls. You know, I hadn't thought about it that way before. But the, if you think about death in prison in that way, there's an element of, you know, removal and forgetting that's going on there. And I think, I think that's what LWAP sentences do. You know, I think uh, I talk about this in the book a bit. I mean, on the one hand, it's a very immediate sentence. So by giving somebody life without parole, you can say to the public, to the people involved in the case, you can say, this person's never getting out and it's relatively final in some ways it's even more final than a death sentence given you know all the appeals and reversals that have happened with death sentences right but you don't have those appeals with life without parole so it's it's in, in a way it's a very immediate claim and on the other hand it's a claim that the person's being like taken away and and put somewhere else so we don't really need to think about them anymore right and they're both false because this person's going to a state or federal prison and they're going to be there for a long time, right? A very long time, perhaps. And they're still in our country. They're still in a prison. It's not like they disappeared, right? So in a way from the public mind, the person's been taken away and put and put out of, out of mind, out of sight, but the, but the person is still in prison. And I think, coming back around to that kind of you know 80-year-old walking out with the cane that just busts that whole fantasy that that somehow you know justice was done before and that person just disappeared that person's actually had a life inside and uh, and the imagery of the release is is really a, is really a powerful one
2: that that's the reason I know because I talk to these politicians and PA that's mainly one of the reasons that they kind of pesting and, and even considering people for compassionate release because it's a, it's a horrific image when you see a man that could be saved I know plenty of people that die of cancer in prison that could have been saved out here but because there was not stage 4 they couldn't get released because if they got released they could have got you know treatment and cheap the system that's how the system put it You know, and I'm saying like, let's start publicizing that. Watching these guys, even with the compassionate release that get accepted, these guys don't walk out of prison. They're coming out of prison in beds, in hospital beds, in wheelchairs, they're not walking out. Let's televise that and then ask America the question. Should we keep these people in prison till they get to this stage? Because when you see somebody, that you could relate to, that could be your mother, your father, your grandfather is a different story. I guarantee you is a different story. You start questioning like, wow, what are we really doing? You know, and what kills me, and I know time is running out, but what kills me is that the politicians that we have that's doing this call themselves Christians. Where is the forgiveness America? If we are a Christian nation, where is the forgiveness? Kevin, I'm going to pass it to you because I see you shaking
1: your head. Well, I, I just think the the idea that we've been sold, especially in a state like California, right, where it's the CDCR, and we've got that rehabilitation added on to the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, how is it? Re- Shouldn't there just be a set separate system completely for people we're giving LWAP sentences to? Because we're not trying to rehabilitate them. In fact, in many states, they're excluded from any educational services because why would we educate you while well, you're in prison if you're going to be here for life? So, there, really, the idea, the, the combination around rehabilitation that many states are putting out there, if we're sentencing people to die in prison, there is no intent on rehabilitation. And many of them are in locked units on top of that, where they're not interacting with other, you know, c- citizens in that are in prison with them. So, I mean, I think, I just want to point that out, that we need to blow up that narrative as well.
0: Yeah, I'm, absolutely. So, yeah, exactly. The What happens inside and the opportunities that people ser- serving LWAP have relative to of people in prison is is really important too and there should be no distinction like people serving life without parole sentences should have the same opportunities for programs and for you know release considerations and whatever other kind of opportunities there are I think more work needs to be done on that I think more research needs to be done on on rules and regulations and laws that limit people serving life without parole and their opportunities in prison and you know there have been some, some there are some situations I can think of California in particular of one where where things are I've opened up to people serving life without parole a little bit recently but this needs to be I agree with you Kevin I think it needs to be an issue that is taken on with the same dedication and kind of intent as as fighting the sentence itself is fighting the the opportunities that people serving the sentence are denied. And yeah, that's, I mean, that's that's not a new thing either. That's something that's been an issue for the past, you know, four decades with people getting sentenced to life sentences, life without parole sentences, suddenly having less opportunities and inside, simply by virtue of the name of a sentence. They might've done a very similar crime to somebody else and the sentence itself is, the, is distinguishing, you know, what they can do or can't do. So yeah, I absolutely agree with that.
2: I mean, in Pennsylvania, lifers are not allowed to even participate in certificate programs and really no programs. And only 10% of the population, of the lifers population, is allowed to go for the GED. So that's maybe two lifers for every two GED classes. So I had to sneak all my prison programs in. I can say that now. And, you know, find a way to get a college course in there that the jail by the time the jail noticed I was damn near done with my degree from Villanova University. You know, but respecting the time, we wanna thank you for coming on our show. You know, where can our audience pick up your book?
0: You can pick it up pretty much anywhere online bookstores, you know, Amazon, all those places, Barnes and Noble, pretty much any local any bookstore online will have it and you can go to UC Press and get it, and you, you can get a Kindle version of it, too. If getting it's a problem, then I would say, you know, week, I'd like to make it as accessible as possible. So it is an academic book, but I, I, I really hope that it's one that that people who aren't in academia will also be reading. And, I'm you know, I'm going around later this fall to do some speaking engagements, and I'm not just doing those at universities. I'm also doing them at bookstores and you know, community groups. So I hope that the message can get through there too.
2: I hope that you consider coming to Pennsylvania, especially Philadelphia, where we got a large number of people serving LWAP. Um, We can make that happen for you. I can facilitate. I can get you in community college to come and discuss that issue if that's what you want to do. You are listening, ladies and gentlemen, to death by incarceration. And you know, if you heard it here first, You know it's official. Kevin McCracken and your host, Suave Gonzalez. Tune in next week. Tune in every week. We hope that you support this book. Go get it, send it to your loved one because I guarantee you there's something in that book that will ignite that fire in your loved one to keep fighting and never give up because it's never over. They told me I was supposed to die in prison, and today, I'm hosting this show. So if you heard it here first, you know it's official. You're listening to Death by Incarceration.
1: We wanna thank Chris Seeds again for coming on the show. His book, Death by Prison, is available at all online booksellers. Get a copy read it, pass it on to somebody. It is a really, really important book. Thanks again for listening. Death by Incarceration is a production of DBI Media and Glassbox. We want to thank Jason Usri for his incredible editing and our team at DBI, Spencer Daniels, Charlotte West. Check us out on all the socials. We're easy to find as well as Patreon, Death by Incarceration. See you next week.
0: Fox Media Podcast.